Hey, this is Gavin Jackson with the South Carolina Lead, and we're continuing our summer look at quote-unquote interesting stuff. Christina Ray Butler is a professor at the American College of the Building Arts, an adjunct professor at the College of Charleston, and owner of Butler Preservation, LC, which specializes in historic research. She is also author of the book, Low Country at High Tide, A History of Flooding, Drainage, and Reclamation in Charleston, South Carolina. It's the first ever comprehensive look at the topographic evolution of Charleston, its history of flooding from the 17th century to present, and the efforts made to keep its populace high and dry as well as safe and healthy. You may have thought, of course, the Charleston Peninsula always floods. It's barely above sea level. Well, there is so much more to the how and the why that we explore with Professor Butler right now. Professor Christina Ray Butler, thanks for joining me to discuss your new book, Low Country at High Tide, A History of Flooding, Drainage, and Reclamation in Charleston, South Carolina. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. Sure thing. Well, Christina, start us off by telling us what prompted you to write this incredibly in-depth, thoroughly researched book, because it is very in-depth. And I I appreciate that because you just get down to all the brass tacks about the history of this great city. Oh, wonderful. Well, I appreciate you saying that because I read through literally a 100 years of city council minute records and, and various other things and tried to synthesize it and make it at least interesting to read. So I'm glad to hear you thought it was worthwhile. <laughs> uh, so what prompted the book initially, um, let me preface this by mentioning I'm not from the coastal south. I'm originally from Ohio. So I had no frame of reference for coastal flooding or hurricanes when I moved to South Carolina back in 2004. And within a couple weeks of arriving, we had a small storm, uh, Category 1, Gaston, and everything downtown flooded. And I tried to walk to work the next day, not realizing people closed for hurricanes. And I was just really struck by what areas were flooded and which weren't. Because Charleston, being a coastal city, is so flat and so low-lying that you really don't notice the topographic nuances until we have a flood. And then just a foot of difference is really a make or break between having habitable ground and having a flooded out car and yard. And so I ended up on a decade and change quest to try and figure out how and why Charleston grew and what we could learn from some of the mistakes and successes of the past as we continue to battle these same flooding problems still today. Yeah, I mean, you definitely see that. Uh, and it, that's a good point, too, because, you know, you start noticing why the same places flood over and over again. And we can talk about that in a moment. But, you know, you do you do uh, chronicle the history. This nine-chapter book goes from, you know, the context and the social scenes from the key time periods over the 340-year history, starting with colonial Charleston, uh, the incorporation of Charleston, the antebellum era, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and the World Wars, up into the emergence of modern Charleston, which, uh, thank God, <laughs> because <laughs> some of those firsthand accounts about the conditions in Charleston, up even into like the 1960s, are, are kind of brutal. You know, talking about epidemics and haphazard filling and growth, sewage issues, and just it seems like trash was everywhere, above ground, even below ground, filling in uh, some of the spaces so they could build, uh, even in the waterways. Can you kind of just talk about some of the highlights, uh, just how challenging things were during some of those key eras? Absolutely. And I think you touched on it really well. We're uh, lucky to be alive in (laughs) Charleston, you know, in all of the South today, post air conditioning and post, you know, proper sewerage and all that good stuff. But some of the early accounts of what people lived through and struggled through in this coastal city were, were really sort of mind-boggling in the in the creative and sometimes really haphazard attempts to make more buildable land. And I think one of the, the fun aspects of the research for me is sort of a consolation that 
Charleston, New Orleans, Boston, you name it. Our our coastal issues aren't new problems, <laughs> but um, people, <laughs> much like today, they're always looking to do things quickly and cheaply. Whether it's speculative private developers or a government, there's always only so much money to go around. And so one of the things that was fascinating to me is the obviously ineffectual things that they used for fill over and over again, and then wondered why everybody was getting, you know, yellow fever and cholera and dysentery and the like. And what we're talking about that too, I mean, we're talking about the growth of the peninsula too, in terms of them filling in marshes to create more land essentially to expand. Absolutely. So Charleston, for the non-local listeners, is a peninsula, and we've got the harbor and the Cooper River and the Ashley River surrounding us. And historically, we had marshes and tidal creeks all over the peninsula sort of cutting in from the rivers. And so over the last 300-odd years, the city government and homeowners have tried to take their lots and make them higher and less flood prone and more buildable. And then along with that, speculative developers tried to take lowlands, not unlike today, and turn them into subdivisions. And so here on the coast, in this part of South Carolina, we don't have any native stone. So unlike other communities that can just quarry some rock, we don't have any. And we also, you know, you have to go dozens of miles inland to start hitting the sand hills. So there's really not a lot of good fill material available. I mean, now we can truck in anything, but historically they couldn't. So from the early days right up into the 1960s, local folks are using literal garbage, you yeah. know, dredge <laughs> spoils, um, street sweeping, slaughterhouse remains, um, rice offal. So literally the husks and junk that you couldn't eat out of rice production and throwing that by the cartload into low-lying areas. And of course, that's all organic material that is going to break down and did break down. And as that material would start to settle, it would take house foundations and street beds with it. And so there was always a scramble to sort of rectify some of this dodgy and probably extremely smelly and offensive filling from the past. Yeah. And it, I mean, is there any idea? Did you ever maybe determine? I know it's just so tricky to also kind of compare like, you know, hundreds of years of data and, and the growth of the, the city. But is, was there any way of you being able to determine just how much land was filled in, how much the peninsula did grow in a sense? Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to give a very ballpark figure, but, you know, we almost doubled the size of the peninsula. Keeping in mind, some of that was true modern reclamation where, you know, we build a seawall in the river and backfill against it. And other sections of the fill would have been, you know, taking a lot that was seemingly buildable at low tide and then floods at high tide and trying to elevate that spot or taking creek beds and filling those. So we're kind of adding on to the sides of the peninsula. And then we're also trying to fill low spots in the pre-existing God-made, if you will, naturally made pre-existing peninsula. So it's pretty much I'd say impossible to figure out how many cubic yards of fill were added over the years. And I've got some boring little statistics in the footnotes about how much fill it would take to elevate a half acre lot a foot or something like that. But one of the reasons it's so difficult to sort of quantify the amount is historically, 
a lot of that wasn't recorded. You know, the government in the colonial era, for example, wasn't really paying attention to what private owners did. So it's anybody's guess where they got that, Phil. Um, got some fun accounts from folks who lived on the edges of the peninsula, what would have been outside the walled city, complaining that they would show up at their lots and people had excavated and quote unquote stolen their dirt <laughs> for fill somewhere else. So, you know, there's a lot of weird mysteries. Every lot is as unique as the owners, but I mean, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cubic tons of fill over the years. And again, redoing a lot of that filling as, you know, uncompacted earth filled and settled over time. Yeah, it makes you wonder about, you know, just excavating some of these places around the peninsula and what you could find in there makes you a little worried too, probably. <laughs> it does. It does. And it's when it's not your lot, it's always sort of fun yeah. <laughs> to encounter these issues. Uh, City of Charleston doesn't unfortunately have an archaeological ordinance yet. And so really private developers can start work and sometimes they don't know what they're going to find until they've started excavation. And sometimes that's, you know, unmarked burial grounds, which brings a whole set of ethical issues. Um, but some Sometimes our previous fill attempts actually make it pretty difficult to build today. Um, for example, with some of the hospital district buildings down at the, the western end of Calhoun Street, folks were driving piles and having a really hard time getting through some of the earth and being shocked about it because we're basically just clay and pluff mud. But what they were hitting was brick bats and construction debris and junk from, you know, 50 to 100 years prior where some industrious little homeowner was trying to fill a low spot. And so our modern contractors find that stuff and sometimes they're kind of baffled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of terrifying to think about just building on top of something like that. <laughs> yeah, it really is. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about the peninsula, which, you know, I think you mentioned averages around 10 to 12 feet above sea level, you know, and at its lowest is at sea level in some parts. Uh, and we're still dealing with those settling issues that you're talking about. Um, is that is that why we know where we have consistent flooding issues because that was a marsh before or because there is settling issues in those parts, like maybe like Lockwood Drive or other parts around the peninsula where they just typically flood. Even the market, I know we can talk about some of the advancements uh, with the flooding and infrastructure to deal with flood water, but is it easy to pinpoint where it's going to flood every time at this point? I'd say conveniently, yes, it is. Now, fixing it is another story because we're only so far above sea level and drainage upgrades are expensive. But I think one of the easiest parts of the research is determining where we'll flood because it's, it's so... I don't want to say easy, but once you have historic maps and plats and you line them up with a peninsula footprint today and you can see exactly what's going to flood, um, the maps line up almost perfectly. So Lockwood Drive, you mentioned, is a great example of that. That's all fill and surprisingly has a lot of settling issues, despite the fact that most of Lockwood is 20th century, you know, World War II era right up to the 1970s. So they actually did make a pretty good effort to, you know, manually compact that fill in, in a air quotes modern sense. But still, fill is really expensive and we don't have a lot of it. And if you elevate one street too much, it's inadvertently going to cause flooding somewhere else. So Lockwood, even though it's modern, is is 
kind of low, like as designed, and it's definitely settled a lot. And I think one big complication to add to spots like Lockwood um, or the west end of Calhoun Street is how much more traffic those roadbeds get than really was intended because the peninsula's population is just growing exponentially, as is our tourism market. And most of those folks drive into the city. So if you think about how much extra weight and seismic movement we've put on some of those streets, it's really no shock that they're settling so much. And I do, you, you mentioned seismic activity, and I want to mention the earthquake in a minute, but um, I, I thought something else was kind of interesting, and maybe maybe it's not so much, maybe it's kind of obvious, but just how much attention was typically paid to the areas south of Broad and the Battery. Uh, it seemed like they would always get the better roads and the sewer hookups early on, thanks to political connections, and then later, it was, later on, it was always improved more consistently due to tourism. Can you talk about south of Broad and just the focus that it received uh, over the centuries? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is a story that's paralleled in almost every city going back as long as humans have been keeping records. There's always, you know, desirable high tax bracket parts of the city. And it's it's in some ways not surprising that those areas would get the bulk of the funding, especially when you consider that's now protected historic district. It's, you know, the height of the tourist part of the city. But sadly, <laughs> the repercussions of that are arguably more at need parts of the peninsula, areas that were in fact more flood prone, got less civic attention. And, you know, you touched on a couple key reasons for that, especially historically, you know, (laughs) not a new story, nepotism, connections, the fact that most mayors lived south of Broad, you know, as did a lot of their constituency, of course, would have impacted you know, where work was done or what contracting companies got work with the city. Um, But where funding went was complicated in the past by some weird, boring, archaic tax structure. And I'm not going to get into that too much, (laughs) except to say that today, you know, most of our tax millage goes into a general operating fund, and then cities sort of divert it where it's most needed. Historically, a lot of improvements, whether it was a new seawall or new paving, would have been assessed towards people in the area who were considered to benefit from it. So if you think about a house south of Broad that, you know, historically was worth the equivalent of $3 million. And they get a large tax assessment bill because that road needs to be raised. That property value and the owner can afford that assessment. You know, think about an area that floods as bad in the east side where I live, which historically was working class. And you might have a house, you know, to give a modern equivalent that's worth $20,000. And there's just not a way to generate enough tax revenue from the properties in that area to pay for those projects. So it really was a constant, complicated funding challenge, um, exacerbated, of course, by ignoring you know working class areas, historically African American areas, which to a large degree were out of sight and out of mind. And I think one of the aspects of that that's becoming really obvious in Charleston today is as we continue 
to gentrify and places like the east side and the west side and north central, which historically had a good bit of fill, as those areas are becoming more expensive and people are moving from outside of Charleston paying $700,000 for a house and then being pretty indignant about the fact that the road out front floods. People who lived here in the past, you know, they, I guess, got used to it, didn't really have a lot of political voice to complain about it. And so now we have all these folks, not unlike me, who aren't used to coastal flooding and are pretty terrified of it. Whereas working class Charlestonians, you know, there's a quote from 1838 where they say, we have to put up wading our way from stone to stone, just pragmatically have to deal with living in those parts of the city. And today there's really more political attention for those areas that got left behind in the past. Yeah, you definitely do a great job looking at the gentrification aspects of this, not only when it comes to, you know, the filling of the areas, but also just the infrastructure that went to those areas. And even when we talk about development of like roads, like the Crosstown Connector and and just other aspects of, you know, on-ramps and things like that, and just how it always shifted to those areas, those poor areas, um, because again, it was just out of sight, out of mind type of, type of approach there too. Um, but can we talk about the ramifications of the 1886 earthquake? Because I thought that was super fascinating to read about, not knowing that much about it, but just how it really stinted the city's growth on into like the early 1900s when until the Navy base was created, which really helped change things up right there and attract new residents and businesses and start to really turn things around when it came to when it comes to better infrastructure in the area. The arrival of the Navy base here in the early 20th century, even though it wasn't on the peninsula, it's further up, you know, the neck in North Charleston, that was a game changer in terms of federal money coming into the area, in terms of attracting outsiders and getting some population growth really for the first time since the end of the American Civil War. So we really can't overstate the importance of the Navy base and dredging and just bringing new industry into the city. But prior to that, Charleston was in a pretty serious and longstanding economic slump. Part of that, of course, being, you know, the the wake of the American Civil War. But again, thinking about what people in this city went through. It's kind of a wonder any buildings and any people survived. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because first you've got the war and the shelling and, you know, the union uh, occupation. And then you have the economic devastation. And then on the heels of that, we had a massive earthquake in 1886. And that's another one of those fluke things that people who aren't from here are shocked to hear about. But Charleston sits on the second most active earthquake fault in the United States. And so we get tremors regularly, and they're usually small. And that, of course, is going to slowly impact Phil and shake it a little bit and make it settle. But the big one in 1886 was, by eyewitness accounts, pretty terrifying um, with the earth literally rolling in the streets like waves of the ocean is how they described it and house frames just racking and keeping in mind all of our masonry buildings, especially if they were on reclaimed land, that seismic movement was just catastrophic for those buildings. And so much like you can take a historic map and line it up with Charleston today and say, oh, the intersection of Lockwood and Calhoun used to be in the river. That's going to flood. You can sort of do the same thing with documenting where the worst earthquake damage was. Basically, any area that had been reclaimed or filled 
had much worse structural damage during the earthquake because it's that soft man-made ground. So for example, buildings in the market, which is fun that it's the kind of height of the tourist part of the city today because historically had the worst flooding, mm-hmm. sometimes still does. Still does, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> had some, you know, pretty racy businesses in the past, lots of taverns, you know, lots of night activity and the worst earthquake damage and got hit by a tornado in 1938. So that is just one unlucky part of the city. Um, but during the earthquake, the facades on a lot of those masonry buildings literally just cracked and sheared off the front of the buildings because they just could not take that seismic movement on all of that early fill. Kind of terrifying to think about. Hopefully we don't have to, yeah. you know, I guess we always have to worry about a potential other one in the future, but uh, we'll add that to the list of things to worry about when it comes to natural disasters for Charleston. And, and speaking about that, uh, Christina, you mentioned that there was, that they spent about $239 million over the past 35 years on drainage. Um, can you talk about that? Have we seen some improvements? I mean, I know there there are still places that flood, even flash flood. It's still difficult to deal with. But what's the what's the outlook now going forward? How do we see? How do you see the city approaching these drainage issues, especially when we start talking about climate change in the holy city? I think the city has done a, a pretty good job, sort of being pragmatic and trying to think bigger long-term picture. I mean, the challenge today is the same as it has been since, you know, the beginning of our city government with incorporation in, in 1783. And that challenge is best practices, expensive ways of doing things, and cheaper, more piecemeal, just get us through <laughs> um, types of repairs. So in the areas where the city has committed to some pretty expensive, large drainage improvements, we have definitely seen a corresponding improvement in terms of flooding. And so a couple good examples of that are the big subterranean drainage pumping stations. So one of our big struggles, unlike you know any flood is catastrophic, but in a higher elevation where a river swells its banks, that water is going to dissipate pretty quickly because it can flow with gravity downhill. In Charleston, we have barely any you know, gradient difference. And so when we flood, it takes a while for the water to recede. Really, we have to wait for the tide to go out to take the water with it. And so one of the cool things about the new below-grade pumping stations is they basically take all of this stormwater, all of this standing water on the street surfaces, channels it down into a conduit, and then pumps all of that extra water off the peninsula out into the rivers. And so the downside of that is if it's raining really hard at high tide and it's a low-lying area it's still going to flood. That's pretty much impossible to fix. The good news is those areas like the market that used to take hours for the water to recede before you could drive back through, now those areas will drain in you know half hour sometimes because those pumps help the, the ground and the area sort of catch up with the water accretion if that makes sense. So the city engineers are, are pretty honest in telling us that those pumping stations won't prevent flooding. They'll just help us get rid of the flooding more quickly. So in the areas where those have been installed, yeah, there is a marked and noticeable difference. Um, One of the other challenges is that when you fill one area, 
you're inadvertently going to cause flooding somewhere else because water has to go someplace. And this is something that we see a lot throughout the United States and anywhere that has, you know, a high water table where it's called fill and build where a developer buys a large chunk of land, trucks in a bunch of fill and elevates a whole subdivision, you know, two or three feet. Well, A, you still have to drive to that subdivision <laughs> through floodwaters, and B, all of that water still has to go somewhere else. So it's now going to go into areas that used to not be lower <laughs> and didn't used to flood. So one of the challenges with our city is you can't really fill the whole peninsula. It's cost ineffective, and it's a built environment. We're not creating new subdivisions out of undeveloped sea islands. So it's really difficult to rectify these flooding problems now that the peninsula is you know, pretty heavily developed. So the city's big responses are trying to improve earlier infrastructure, you know, it, repairing the battery seawall, elevating the low battery that was built sort of too low in the first place <laughs> in the early 20th century, and then putting in more and more pumping stations to try and sort of catch up. Yeah, and especially when we talk about climate change, too, as, as a result, when we talk about sea uh, level rise, we're talking about more intense storms, you know, hurricanes and rain events. Uh, so this is all just uh, a way to really try to keep up with all that as much as we can, even though I think there are some estimates that it would cost, you know, what, I think $2 billion, several billion dollars over the next coming uh, decades just to kind of keep up with these issues. Yeah. You know, so again, it's expensive, but I think everyone who lives here knows it's worth it. And so do the 7 million tourists who come here. You know, Charleston is a really special place in terms of cultural history and architectural heritage. So of course, everybody values their own home on the coast and wants to save it. But Charleston's also one of the most historic cities on the East Coast, especially in the South. And so I, I would argue as a preservationist that it's worth that price tag. And if you want to just think of it in a more economic or mercenary sense, your average house on the battery is at this point probably worth $10 million a piece. The real estate values in this city you know, make it worth trying to save, even if you're somebody who's not as concerned about the architectural significance. So going forward, uh, you mentioned really um, aptly that we have a lot of challenges and they're not all new challenges, but they're challenges that are increasing in severity, you know, rising sea level, worse storm situations. And I will say I've been here bad at math, 17, 18 years, the areas where we've put in the new pumping stations are much better flooding wise than they used to be. The flip side to that is we continue developing downtown. We're losing permeable land. So are the islands and the subdivisions off of the peninsula. And I can tell you that sunny day flooding, which is what they call it when tidewater just comes out of the drains into the city, it's not even raining and the city will flood because it's so low lying. And that's a problem that has existed as long as there have been people recording. But those sunny day events happen much more frequently. Um, there is a, a road that they're building a bunch of new condos on as we speak uh, that was filled and a lot of it was incremental fill. It's always flooded. 
it probably always will. And it's right next to one of the only grocery stores downtown. And so I can tell you that area floods probably three times more often than it did when I moved here. So that that's a pretty significant inconvenience for people who live here. Well, that's uh, a great outlook. A lot of challenges, obviously, still dealing with the historic holy city of Charleston. Uh, but you paint a really great picture there in your book, Professor Christina Ray Butler. Uh, your book, Low Country at High Tide, A History of Flooding, Drainage, and Reclamation in Charleston, South Carolina, from the University of South Carolina Press. Great talking with you about your book, and uh, hopefully we stay dry. Thanks so much. It was, it was an honor and a pleasure, and have a great rest of your day. Thanks again to Professor Butler and to our listeners. And stay tuned for our upcoming episodes as we continue our summer listening series. 